Hello, I'm Eric Sorensen, and welcome to the West Block podcast for Sunday, May 13th on this Sunday. The Federal Minister of Immigration is in Africa to try and stop the influx of Nigerians seeking asylum in Canada illegally. What will it take to stop the flow across our border? Then, another NDP MP is under investigation for alleged sexual misconduct. The second one this year, and this time a woman MP. How does that change the dynamic of politics, power and punishment? And a conversation on this Mother's Day with Jill Shear, wife of Conservative Party leader Andrew Shear and mother of five. But first, last week the government announced new measures to try and stem the flow of asylum seekers trying to enter this country illegally. Last year, some 18,000 people crossed the Canadian border to seek asylum. In recent weeks, the number has spiked. Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale says more resources are being committed to process asylum seekers. And joining us now, Ralph Goodale. Thanks for being here. Glad to be here. So when we say about 18,000 came across last year seeking asylum uh, and that the pace appears to be even faster this year, are those numbers correct? Uh, those are in the ballpark. You, 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 this is a very unpredictable number. People were were predicting low at certain periods last year when the numbers went up, and they were predicting high last year when the numbers went down. So you can't be absolutely sure, uh, but one would expect that the number will be uh, higher this year than it was last year. And I guess especially in the summer. And and last year it was you know there were a lot of Haitians that were coming. This, this year, it's it, Nigerians we're hearing it, about. What's, what's it, up with it, that? It changes all the time. Uh, earlier last year, it was actually people from Somalia mm -hmm. uh, and focused on the border crossing south of Winnipeg at Emerson mm -hmm. uh, in, in Manitoba. Uh, later on the year, the focus shifted to La Colle in Quebec with uh, the numbers largely being uh, Haitian over the summer. Uh, and uh, that, that flow stopped uh, because of the action that was taken by the government of Canada to make it very clear to, to people who were contemplating this kind of a move, which is clearly contrary to the rules, made it very clear there are, there are strict border rules when you come to the Canadian border, and if you violate those rules, you will be arrested. And uh, people were arrested. Uh, the, the normal security process clicked into place. And we communicated that message back to the Haitian diaspora across the United States. And once the message was clearly heard and understood, those numbers dropped dramatically. And Minister Hussein now is in Nigeria because it seems like there are people trying to game the system. They have the wherewithal to get from somewhere far away in the world, uh, get a visitor's visa to the United mm -hmm. States, can come to the Canadian border, and then Oh, I need to claim asylum. We've raised this with both the Nigerian government, and, and Ahmed is doing that again this week, uh, and also with the American government, because these people appear to be traveling on legitimate, valid U.S. visas, U.S. travel documents. That's how they get from, from Nigeria to North America, but then they only stay in the United States for a short period of time and start heading toward the Canadian border. So we've asked the Americans uh, to make sure there is no abuse of their travel document system. Uh, and they've started to accelerate that, that process of investigating that, and the numbers are, are dropping. Uh, we've also asked them, when you detect a person that is already traveling in this obviously illegitimate way, interdict the travel. Stop it before it, uh, before it gets to the Canadian border. And they're working on that as well. So we're getting cooperation from the, both the Nigerian government and the American government. Uh, but we need more and we'll continue to press on both of them because it's their responsibility to, uh, uh, to help us stop this, uh, this 
unconventional and, and, uh, and obvious circumvention of Canadian law. Let me ask you about the safe third country agreement. If somebody were to come to the border and came to the border point, they would be just prevented because the United States is considered a safe country, so you can't claim asylum at the border point. So they're just going around that for the time being. But here's what Michelle Rempel has to say about the safe third country agreement. Okay. So my question is very simple. When will the Prime Minister close the loophole in the safe third country agreement? Is there a loophole that can be closed so that will keep people from simply saying, well, I won't go to the border point then? Like she's suggesting, in effect, let's make the whole border a border point. Well, actually, if you were to do that, you would simply diffuse the problem over a 9,000-kilometer territory and make it, and make it worse. Uh, the, uh, the, the concentration of the activity uh, now in two or three points uh, makes sure that we, uh, we have a very direct focus on what is going on. If you were to spread that out over 9,000 kilometers, you would actually just drive it all underground and make it much more difficult to, uh, uh, to control. But in, in terms of, of the Safe Third, uh, that's an agreement that uh, has been in place now for 14 or 15 years. Uh, any agreement that, that's that old uh, can do with some renewal and renovation and change and amendment. It's being taken advantage of. Well, uh, we have raised with, with the United States our concerns with respect to this matter. They are considering if they're uh, interested in, uh, in having a negotiation. Uh, but we've also pointed out to them that a, that, a, that a secure, efficient, effective border between Canada and the United States is as much in their interest as it is in, their, in, in ours. Uh, they have much the same kind of problem on their Mexican border. Uh, and uh, that's obviously their major preoccupation. But our argument with the United States is we need to make this work successfully both ways for both countries. Uh, we each have a common interest in fixing what is wrong uh, and making sure that our borders are strong and secure. Canada is a very welcoming country. Do we risk becoming less welcoming if we have these images of people just circumventing the system and getting in, well, even, if, even, if, even if it's just for a time to kind of work the system. People need to understand that crossing the border in, in a way that does not follow the rules, that does not follow the law. If you cross the border in that manner, you are, you are, you are violating the rules and the laws, uh, and you will be arrested. It is not a free ticket to Canada. There are consequences in trying to evade due process. And we are determined that every Canadian law will be enforced, uh, and every international obligation that Canada has will be honoured and respected. We've managed to do that faithfully so far, and we will continue to ensure that that is the case. Are most being sent back? The, uh, the process of adjudication is the thing you have to do first. Under the law, you have to determine a person's status. Are they or are they not a refugee? Do they or do they not require Canada's protection to uh, ensure their safety? That adjudication process takes, uh, takes some time, but we're putting more money into it to do it faster. Uh, and then when the answer is no, if, if the adjudication done according to due process says, no, you are not requiring Canadian protection uh, for your, your safety, you become inadmissible and you will be removed from Canada. Are Canadians getting an exaggerated picture then? Because you don't have to see many crossing the border before you start to think, oh, my God, we're being invaded. Um, is, you know, I mean, in terms of the numbers, I mean, in Europe, I mean, we're talking tens of thousands. Well, the, the situation in many other countries around the world is, uh, is much more dramatic, much more difficult. In our little corner of North America, we're, we're sheltered from most of this. We're not immune to it, though. The world is going through the largest dislocation of humanity and, and human migration 
migration uh, that we've seen since the Second World War. Oh. And, and we need to make sure that we've got the resources and the rules in place to, to deal with it and to make sure that Canadians are safe and secure. How much is the Trump administration complicating things for Canada because they clearly are sending a message to people that are in the United States or possibly trying to get into it, like, you are just not welcome. And well, that's pushing people to want to come here. The Americans are responsible for their own positions and, and, uh, and uh, ideological stances. That's, that's, that's their uh, issue to determine. What we've said to them is, if you're going to change your policy, uh, with respect to people who have temporary status in the United States, for example. Uh, the Hondurans are the most recent example. Make sure you give us lots of notice so this doesn't become a surprise at the last minute. And so far they are, they are doing that. Uh, 18 to 24 months notice is typically uh, what they're giving now. And that gives us an opportunity then to approach the Honduran community uh, and, and to say to them, understand the Canadian rules. If yeah. you cross that border in an irregular fashion, you're going to be arrested and due process will follow. But Donald Trump's not giving anybody 18 to 24 months. His message is going out hard. His Homeland Security chief is saying we're going to prosecute them if they come across the border. I mean, he's put, he's put a lot of fear in the, the minds of a lot of immigrants in the U.S., and some of that is coming up this way. But, but, but the rules don't take effect mm -hmm. until 18 to 24 months down the road. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the rhetorical position is there, uh, but he has uh, uh, given that notice, that 18 to 24 months uh, notice, to, uh, to several different groups in the United States over the last six months, and those movements have not taken place. Those, those diaspora are not moving. Uh, so that gives us the opportunity to work with the U.S. government, work with those other governments and those groups in the United States to say, don't make a run on the Canadian border because it's not going to work in your advantage to do that. Ralph Goodell, thanks for talking to us. Thanks very much. The NDP is embroiled in another alleged sexual misconduct scandal, the second this year. The party has launched an investigation into Quebec MP Christine Moore to determine whether a relationship she pursued with a veteran was inappropriate. This comes just a week after leader Jagmeet Singh expelled MP Aaron Weir from caucus after an investigation into harassment allegations, which coincidentally was prompted by accusations from Moore. Just because of an allegation that's now risen, which we take seriously, in no way should cast any question of credibility about other allegations. This notion has happened far too often to women and is not an acceptable um, line of argument. If there's an allegation, we'll take it seriously. Joining us now is Libby Davies, longtime New Democrat, a former MP, and a brand new recipient of the Order of Canada, which happened this week. First, congratulations on that. Thanks very much, Eric. Talk to us about the balancing act that you see that Jagmeet Singh is having to kind of conduct right now. Well, you know, I think it's a really tough situation uh, for any leader, whether they're new as Jagmeet is or whether it's someone who's very experienced. Uh, because when these issues arise around harassment, sexual harassment, uh, when they become public, it's very public and suddenly, you know, the spotlight is on and words become very important and how you uh, follow up, what kind of uh, process there is. And I feel that, you know, overall, we're in this time of a massive shift 
in society generally. The Me Too movement has been so important. Uh, and yet, so many of our public institutions, whether it's Parliament Hill, political parties, the media itself, you know, or the workplace, uh, we're so far behind in terms of how we respond to it uh, with, with processes. And so I think we all feel kind of caught in this moment as it becomes really difficult to sometimes navigate how to deal with um, individual um, allegations and incidents and situations that come up. And I, I think we see this with the NDP. We've seen it with other political parties who are grappling with the same issue. And with Christine Moore, I mean, now you have a woman being accused. We're not as used to that. It's, it's hard to know how to fit that in. You can understand why Mr. Singh is saying, well, that's separate from this other. But it raises questions in people's minds about, well, is there some connection between the first and the second? And who is this person now? Yeah, is that I, complicated? It, I do think that there's more of a automatic response that we all have when, uh, when the complainant um, is a woman, or in many cases, many women. Uh, when it's the other way around, um, people, you know, you have to kind of adjust and think, okay, is, is this what's happening? Um, I think the bottom line is, though, if, if you have a well-established, fair, transparent, process, it, it helps carry you through that. Because the important thing is to do um, a review and investigation to find out actually what happened. And if, if discipline is needed, then you take that discipline. Um, and, and also to ensure that there's education. I mean, again, I think everybody's grappling with this in terms of, um, the, I mean, I think there's a whole line, right? There's lots of stuff that we all know is totally inappropriate, mm -hmm. right? It's overt, it's sexist, it's sexual harassment, it's violent even. I mean, those things are very clear. But there's also areas that are not so clear in, ter in terms of people's human relations um, uh, and the relationships we have in the workplace or in politics. And so you do, you know, you also get into that and into that not so clear area. But but still, I think if you have a good process, it should be able to get you through that to sort of sort out what really happened and, and whether or not there was wrongdoing. And, and I want to ask you a little bit just on that with, with Aaron Weir, because, I mean, the leader said, you know, he failed to read nonverbal mm -hmm. cues. And the first thought I had was, well, that just sounds like the kind of language used when it's a more mm -hmm. clinical assessment. Mm -hmm. And you wonder, well, is there an area here that also doesn't kind of hasn't had enough attention where there can be a misunderstanding based on underlying issues? I think Aaron himself has said that he knows that he's socially awkward. And he's also said that when he, when someone has said, a woman has said something to him, he's, he's you know, backed away. He's at, at some point understood that. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it does raise the question of um, what those human relations are about. And if someone is on the spectrum, um, you know, are they aware of that? Are yeah. they aware of what they're doing? How do we provide um, education and understanding in the workplace? Because obviously, I mean, someone's behavior, even if they are on the spectrum, can have an impact on other people, right, around yeah. them. And so, to me, it comes back to a very fundamental issue that we never pay enough attention to. And when I mean we, I don't mean just the NDP. I mean all of us. Um, is, is that kind of human resources and the workplace relationships, right? We're all busy doing our job, but how we interact with one another and whether or not we provide a safe workplace where these situations can be dealt with in a way that somebody doesn't feel like they're, you know, being, you know, nailed to the wall, and yet the, and yet complainants feel that they have a, a proper process that they can go through and be heard, and the action will be taken. So this is complicated stuff. And I feel like 
um, nobody has really got it right. And I think a big question is Parliament Hill itself. You know, why aren't there over... What, you know, each political party is dealing with this mm -hmm. separately, differently, right? Um, Parliament Hill overall is a workplace, right? Uh, yes, there's MPs, there's staffers, there's people who work for the House of Commons itself. Um, and it, so it seems to be... Um, you know, a very muddled environment in terms of what is it that applies. And I, I feel that the Board of Internal Economy, which is the governing board of the House of Commons, really needs to pay much greater attention to this overall to make sure that there are good processes in place. I don't think we've gone the distance on it yet. I just want to ask one last thing, bringing back to the leader. Um, you know, he's having a little bit of difficulty from the outside, it appears, of kind of controlling the caucus. He's not with the caucus all the time. He doesn't have a seat uh, in the House. Should he be getting a seat sooner rather than later? Well, that's his decision. I mean, Jack didn't have a seat for a while. Uh, Jack was in Ottawa a lot, Jack Layton. Uh, I think it's tremendously important to establish that uh, solidarity and, and working relationship mm -hmm. with the caucus. And, uh, you know, Jagmeet's a new leader. He's out on the road a lot, which is fantastic. Um, but obviously, you know, the relationship he has with his caucus is very, very important. That's kind of the foundation. Um, so I think, I mean, what I see is he's someone who's learning. Um, and uh, Parliament Hill, as you know, can be a very volatile, um, interesting place to work. Um, so I feel like he's, you know, he's learning th this stuff. Um, he's got a good caucus. He's got a lot of um, experienced people there, and, and I think it will come together. The, the spotlight on Parliament Hill is incandescent. <laughs> Libby, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. While Conservative leader Andrew Scheer is on Parliament Hill holding the government to account, Jill Scheer is holding the fort at home. The Shears moved into Stornoway last year, the official residence for the new leader of the official opposition. Jill and their five children, five, moved from Saskatchewan to life in Ottawa and to life in the public eye. For this Mother's Day, we visited Stornoway to talk to Jill Shear about being a mom. Uh, Jill Shear, thank you for uh, joining us on this uh, Mother's Day conversation. Thanks for having me. Test you right off the bat. Name all five of your kids. <laughs> Thomas, Grace. Madeline, Henry, and Mary. Well done. Now, Thanks. the ages are 13, 11, 9, 7, and then 2. 2. What happened there? A majority government. We had <laughs> one baby per election from back to Andrew's first election, and the, the one gap represents the majority. What's the, um, what's the challenge in raising five kids? And I could stop right there, but I'll say, <laughs> what's the challenge in raising five kids in this very public life? Um... The challenges are that feeling of wanting to protect your children. I think we always have that feeling of not wanting them exposed to negativity and not wanting them to hear negative things about their parents. And so I think our instinct is to shelter them from all of that. And you can't shelter them from everything. You can have the news on and they can see something or um, hear something on the playground at school. And so I think the hardest part is wanting to keep them protected from the big political life. Yeah. And, and with five kids, because so many people have one or two and kind of stop there. Um, in my life, it was we, we figured the ratio one parent to one child was all we could handle. How <laughs> difficult is it just raising five kids nowadays? It's hard. Like, it's busy sometimes, a lot of the time. I always say when they're at school, it's quiet and Mary and I are home. And when uh, they bust through the door, it all heck breaks loose. It's... It can be a crazy place to be sometimes. <laughs> you, you didn't sign up for this. Like, you lived a pretty probably ordinary life, people would say. Um, how are you finding the adjustment yourself? I'm 
Good, good. Yeah, there's it's been an adjustment period of moving across the country and bringing all five kids and having them go to school here and some changes, new new neighbors, new drive to school, new everything's new and you know, just finding your new grocery store and your um, pharmacist and all those things are just like take a little bit of time and a little bit of an adjustment. What kind of an adjustment do you think it would be if, uh, if Andrew were to become prime minister? I mean, just imagine the attention on you and on your kids. Yeah, yeah. I haven't spent too much time thinking about that just yet, yeah. but as the, as the election approaches, it'll... The polls it'll are looking become, not that bad. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to uh, make some adjustments again then. <laughs> but uh, you, you, you said you wanted to be able to protect them. I mean, and all parents want to do that. And in this you know, social media era... Mm -hmm. um, that's hard to do. There are a lot of people that just want to get on there and be mean and kids of famous people sometimes can be targeted. Yeah. What, what are yeah. you going to do to So of... far our kids are a little bit young for that. They're not really, They're haven't really asked edge. for, I know, I know we were kind of dreading the day that they ask for a Facebook account or Snapchat or whatever, Instagram, I don't know. Um, but it'll come and we'll have to kind of deal with it as it comes. But so far, it's just been me dealing with the comments. And I, I tend to just sort of scroll past the negative ones and appreciate the, the nice ones. People say nice things too. It's, we always tend to focus on the things that people say that are mean or, um, but often people will say, oh, you have a lovely family, or look at that little cutie, or I love seeing pictures of your kids, and that, yeah. I like that. So sometimes I'll just click on the comments and kind of hold my breath and hope they're nice. <laughs> then you come across, a, come across a rude one and you just scroll on. The, um, uh, you know, I read where the, the Obamas tried to always make sure they had some family time together because his schedule was crazy. Your husband's yeah. schedule is pretty crazy. It is. Um, can you find the time to be able to make sure that uh, mom and dad both are around for the kids? Yeah, we try to cut out some intentional time all together. Um, we, last night we were all playing um, basketball out in the driveway and just, I think Andrew was still in his suit and I was still in my dress from the event we came home from and we were just took off our shoes and <laughs> played around basketball with the whole family. So. Stuff like that. We just sometimes it's impromptu. Sometimes we actually carve out time and try to make sure that we're all together. Andrew's usually home for supper a couple nights a week, yeah. and that's that's nice. How do the kids feel about this? Like uh, Andrew was saying, this floor almost becomes kind of a public space, and the the private is for you upstairs and that. But uh, how it are is. the kids with? A, a television crew coming in, that kind of thing. I, they're starting to get used to it. The yeah. funny thing is that what the viewers at home can't see are all the toys along the walls yes. that we like pushed out of the way and the ride on Peppa Pig car and all of that. But it's we have taken over the whole house. This this space is kind of public, but if if we're not hosting an event, it tends to look like a daycare. <laughs> um, I mentioned the Obamas. Uh, Michelle Obama's mom was with uh, the family. Your mom is here with you. She came. She just flew in today she's, from oh, Regina. She's yeah, she's here ah. for the weekend. What, yeah. What would you say you uh, got from your mom that uh, helped you to be a mother? Oh, my mom was an awesome mom. My parents were just all about the kids. So like, anything we wanted, we they helped us achieve. Like I remember when my siblings and I were little, we would say, I want to be uh, a teacher. I want to go to university. My sister's a chartered accountant and she, she pushed for that. And my brother used to say, I want to play professional football. And all the other parents said, oh, well, you should be realistic. And my mm -hmm. parents said, no, you can totally play professional football. And sure enough, my brother's in the NFL. So yeah, you just, amazing. yeah, you strive for your dreams. And we were just told anything was possible. This guy was absolutely the limit. And we were treated like we were like, 
the greatest kids that ever were. <laughs> we just thought we were pretty fantastic. Our parents just, they, yeah, they thought the world of us and they, yeah, they were wonderful, wonderful parents. And, and is that what you try to impart on your kids? Yeah, yeah, like I, we tell them that they're so special to us and we just adore them and that anything's possible. You can do absolutely anything. So your kids are coming in, as we were saying earlier, they're coming into that social media age. Mm -hmm. Are you prepared for the kinds of things that they might be coming at you with that are from, you know, kind of modern age? I mean, you and Andrew are kind of traditional values, mm -hmm. um, maybe even old fashioned. I'm a little old fashioned in some <laughs> ways, but, uh, but are they going to come at you with things that you're going to have to I'm sure we'll have to prepare ourselves for just about them to come at us with just about anything. But I was actually talking to my sister-in-law about this the other day because we were saying that there's not really a precedent for this. Like we can't ask our parents, how did you guys deal with social media? How did you deal with people trolling the kids? How did you deal with online bullying? We're sort of new at this and we don't really have any, another generation to ask advice. So we're all just kind of swimming the same waters trying to navigate this. So hopefully we'll have some wisdom when the time comes, but it, I'm sure it won't be easy, but we'll uh, take it one, one day at a time. Do, do you worry about the, uh, the, the, the influence that's there because the, the world is not as traditional as it once was and right. you're still trying to be kind of a traditional life oh, right, uh, with right. the kids. Yeah. How do you find the balance? Well, I think all parents worry about all aspects of their children. So yeah. I think we're not like, we're not different from anyone else in that regard. You lay awake at night, hoping that they're healthy, hoping that they're safe, hoping that they have the values that you hope they have. And our, our goal for them is to be good, good people. And we want them to have open hearts and kind hearts. And we want them to be kind to every person in the world. Like we, we don't want them to have a mean bone in their body. So hopefully that's what we're teaching them. And hopefully that's what they can what they can go forward with. Thomas is uh, 13, he's the oldest, and I guess you're just embarking on this period where most, most parents who've been through that will say, oh, you've got the teenage I know we get these to... sympathetic looks when people are like, oh, 13, like, oh, how's that going? <laughs> yeah, and it's just sort of starting this sort of sleeping in and eating like a horse and all of that's just sort of getting going. So we have four more following him to look forward to. So I asked my wife, I said, what should I ask Jill Shear about being a mom? She said, ask her if there was anything that she uh, wasn't prepared for that she wished somebody had told her to expect when she became a mom. For oh. her, it was, she said, that she lost all her private time. She didn't have, okay. she couldn't even be in the bathroom without the kids walking in on it. Right. One thing that I didn't know was like, before you have kids, you don't really think about, about this, but it's almost like a part of your heart is living outside of you, like something that you couldn't love more. And you have to sort of like send them down the street to the park and send them across the street to a friend's house. And it's hard. Every little more you let go yes. is hard as a parent. You, you want to sort of put them in a bubble and keep them close and keep them safe. But you have to. And we know we have to and we can't be helicopter parents. So we've we've started to they walk down the street to the corner store and they'll go pick us up something from the grocery store. and. But it is hard. It feels like you're letting a little piece of yourself go and you just hope they're safe and look both ways before they cross the street. <laughs> How do you see your, your role as, as, the, uh, as both a mom but also as a wife of somebody who's such high, high profile and potentially a very high profile in political life? Right. Well, I try to be as supportive as I can. It's not always easy because sometimes you feel sort of like um, you want him home and you want his time to be spent with you and you have to kind of 
obviously let him go and do his work. And um, but I feel like my role is a supporter, and I try to be that. And um, I try to sort of um, look after the kids to a point, but at the same time, I want when he comes home, he sort of does that too and sort of takes over. He helps with the homework, especially the French homework. And uh, yeah, he. Uh, He's a great dad, in, yeah. and it's yeah, it's awesome. He. Uh, we'll take take a moment on that. I know it's Mother's Day, but uh, yeah. but uh, tell us about how Dad is able to sort of what he's able to do. You feel with uh, with the kids, right? Given the demands he has in yeah. his job, Andrew's super reasonable and super patient. So like he never flies off the handle at them for something that they didn't deserve, or yeah. um, and he's so patient, like. When they come to me having had a fight, I just like my instinct is like go over there and work it out. Like I, I don't, I'm not the moderator of <laughs> these fights, but he'll say, and what did she say? And and he said that, and that must have hurt your feelings. And he's just so patient. And I sometimes he'll take one off that's having a crying fit or something. And I think, wow, he's been working a 14-hour day, and now he's off solving the problem of the fight between the Dora doll and the <laughs> whatever it is, <laughs> right. you know? But yeah, he's very patient, very sweet with the kids, are and they, they adore him. Aw, that's nice. Yeah. Are, they, are they catching on to sort of that Andrew Shear is a, is a name that other kids are going to know from their parents even? I think it's just starting the, um, Grace had a substitute teacher at school the other day, and um, the kids in the class thought that this teacher looked like Andrew. So one of the little kids went up to the teacher and said, has anyone ever told you you look like Andrew Shear?" And he said, yeah, actually, I've been told that before. And, and uh, Grace is like, that's my dad. And she, she couldn't believe that he knew who that was. And that's sort of starting, I guess, that then they know that the name maybe means something. And, uh, and on a typical Mother's Day, what uh, what will happen? You have your mom here, so I yeah, mean, that'll so be you, nice. There, there are two mothers that will yes. have to be honored. Yes, yes, that'll be nice. Um, so typical Mother's Day, the kids Andrew gets them up early and they make me breakfast in bed, uh-huh. and then all the homemade gifts, like the necklace made out of Fruit Loops, and the, <laughs> yeah, lots of homemade drawings, paintings, cards, the ones you tuck away and pull out again in twenty years and probably have a good cry over. <laughs> Well, that sounds uh, sounds like a wonderful day and, and a wonderful life. Yeah, at this yes, it's are you, pretty. Are you, are you happy with it? Because you didn't, as we said before, you, you you didn't sign up for this. Right. How are you? How do you feel about your life kind of taking the turns that it has? Right. Well, I've always said to Andrew, like his dream was politics and a family, and and my dream was just I, I've always wanted to be a mom. I've wanted to be a mom since the day I could say I want to be a mom. I always knew that that was my yeah. job, my destiny, and so I. Uh, I feel like I'm living my dream too. Like I, I get to have all these little lovely kids that are sweet and yeah, just kind little hearts. And I feel so honored to be their mom. You feel lucky? Very, very lucky. Yes, of course, yes. We feel lucky uh, having had the chance to talk to you today. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. I'm Eric Sorensen. Thank you for listening to the West Block podcast. For more, go to our website, thewestblock.ca. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And tune in again next week for another West Block.